What's up, folks? Welcome back. Whoop Podcast. We sit down with the best of the best athletes, researchers, scientists, more. Learn what the best in the world are doing to perform at their peak. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop. We're on a mission to unlock human performance. Before we dive in today, I want to highlight our upcoming January Jumpstart Challenge. Through this in-app challenge, our members can kick off the new year by focusing on their health and fitness goals. Sign up before December 28th, and the challenge begins on January 1st. This week's episode, our fearless WHOOP VP of Performance Science, our principal scientist, Kristen Holmes, is joined by Dr. Darren Kandow. Darren is professor and director of the Aging Muscle and Bone Health Laboratory in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Health Studies at the University of Regina, Canada. In addition, Dr. Kandau serves on the editorial review boards for the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, Advanced Exercise, and Health Sciences. He has published over 125 peer-reviewed journal manuscripts. Kristen and Darren discuss creatine's role within the body, the best ways to get creatine both naturally and through supplements, the benefits of taking creatine. He touches on how it can help neurological function as well as sleep, how creatine can impact bone health and aging, some of the biggest myths around creatine. It's not a steroid and anyone can take it. And some of the creatine research Darren is obsessing over. If you have a question you must be answered on the podcast, email us, podcast.com. Call us, 508-443-4952. Without further ado, here are Kristen Holmes and Dr. Darren Kandow. Dr. Kandow, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so pumped to for you to give us a rundown of all the ways literally every human on the planet can benefit from creatine monohydrate. Okay. <laughs> uh, you are just one of the leading experts, and we're just super grateful for the opportunity to, to talk to you. You know, we have a lot of members and a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are interested in optimizing their health and performance and, you know, paying down injury and illness burden and it just sounds like, you know, creatine is just such a, you know, an important supplement that has really proven to, to help folks. So can't wait to hear you break all of that down for us. Uh, I'm going to start with a quick stat that I want you to re react to. So on the Whoop platform, our members can track various behaviors. So anything from, you know, reproductive health to supplements to, um, you know, light viewing and kind of circadian behaviors. And so they can track all sorts of things. So one of the um, things that we've seen the biggest uptick is in, uh, in fact, an 118% increase in journal tracking has been creatine. Okay. So I'm just wondering, you know, why is there this kind of surge in, in popularity? Uh, it's an interesting uh, finding. I probably wouldn't have expected that. I, I think probably because what's old is new again. Um, in the late 1990s, even in the early 2000s, we kind of already knew what creatine did, primarily for young males. It seemed to make individuals bigger, stronger, faster, and that was great for the athletes and the high-performance exercising individuals. But there's a lot of other people on the planet that are not elite athletes or structured exercise individuals on teams. Uh, they like to exercise or get up uh, each day for the health benefits. And then sure enough, we started to see some new evidence that creatine may have some potential benefits for bone, primarily females, which has massive implications potentially for young females, but then you look at postmenopausal uh, females. And then of course, the big area push right now is the neck up. Uh, we're starting to see some emergence on anxiety, depression, potentially for concussion. What about sleep deprivation? We're not getting enough sleep and, and can mm -hmm. creatine sort of rescue that? 
So I think that's the emergence. It's sort of hit a, a everybody can consider this instead of just the athletes. And I think that's why it's probably been a big uptake. And hopefully the other big thing is we're getting more evidence-based research out there to the public. It's not just our opinion. It's actually doing a lot of hours in the lab, as you know, and, and we're producing uh, viable and, and reliable research to that. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Uh, you've been certainly leading the way, and and I want to dig into the brain health and the, uh, you know, just the concussion research with children is just fascinating, and just the re- most recently uh, published paper on um, postmenopausal, we'll dig into sleep deprivation. So before we kind of get into all that, why don't you just give us a rundown of just creatine's role and purpose uh, within the body, just to give everyone a little bit of a framework. Yeah, its main role is based on high energy uh, metabolism, so it helps maintain adenosine triphosphate or ATP, which is in all our cells. Mm-hmm. But the theory is if you have more ATP during exercise, you may be able to perform greater training volume. So maybe more repetition sets or recovery. So all those pioneering studies simply showed more creatine in the muscle led to an improvement in exercise or sport performance. And that has applications for a lot of individuals. Now, when we look at older adults, losing muscle mass, losing bone mass, what about the young children and young females, especially for bone density? So the theory there was from a high energy standpoint, creatine could just maybe give more energy to the cell, but Mm -hmm. then it sort of really exploded looking at other mechanisms of how it may improve muscle mass, strength, and those other capacities. So it, it went from an energy status to now having about 10 to about 12 purported mechanistic steps of why the muscle may grow and or why you may get an increase in strength, endurance, recovery, so on and so forth. What are some of the best natural ways to get creatine? So maybe we start there. Yeah, so the best natural way is how you're actually producing it right now in the liver and the brain. We produce about one to three grams. So for the vegans and vegetarians out there, that's a a minimal amount that's been shown to be still effective to the human physiology uh, aspects. But from a dietary perspective, it gets a bit more tricky. The highest concentrations are in animal-based flesh or meat. So red meat, seafood, and and some of the poultry uh, lines. Uh, Minimal amount in dairy and minimal amount, if any, in other traces such as vegetables. So... If you're an omnivore or a carnivore, you're probably getting about maybe one to three extra grams a day in addition to what we're naturally producing. Um, But again, the big push, plant-based diet, vegan, vegetarian, ethical treatment of animals, allergies to seafood, whatever it is, those are the populations that may uh, sort of consider supplementation instead of the diet. Now, I should point out the lowest dose ever been shown to be effective in the muscle is an additional three grams a day. So that sort of says, okay, I can get it through the diet. I mean, a a red steak or maybe a serving and a half of salmon would give you about three to five grams, but that's every day. And that's probably not viable, uh, especially with the cost of food nowadays. So that's why I think supplementation is one of those things that has been looked at to help offset habitual dietary intake or even augment uh, what we already have. And we'll probably talk about dosing today. It's sort of taken on a new life does the tissue of the body determine the dose? And and that's still up for debate, but I have some opinions on that as well. Yeah. I want to make sure we talk about kind of responders versus non-responders and what that actually looks like. Cause I think that's a, that's, I think such an interesting take, you know, to kind of understand how it fits into, to your life and and what to be looking out for. So in terms of just benefits, you know, what can, what can folks, uh, 
expect. And maybe this is actually when we get in, you know, we can talk about dosage, you know, if, if we're, you know, wanting to improve brain health, for example, how much do we have to take? If we're looking for just athlete, you know, athletic recovery, how much do we need to take? If we're looking for, you know, to offset, you know, bouts of, of sleep deprivation, how much do we need to take? Maybe you can just give us a, a rundown. Yeah, this is quite interesting. So I'm going to divide it up into two parts from the neck down. You, Perfect. all the benefits that you get from creatine are highly and primarily driven from exercise. So from the neck down, I would say any of the benefits from creatine, 95 to 98% come from exercise and the additional small percentage, one to 2% is from creatine. So the mechanical stimuli from exercise sti stimulates creatine's potential, but the dosing from a muscle perspective, you can take as little as three grams a day, and that'll probably be a viable dose if you're taking it for maybe the rest of your life or for longer periods of time. Up to five grams, that's, that's very viable and very safe. But again, it has to be combined with exercise. We're not seeing any benefits if you just sort of take creatine as a Flintstone vitamin and sort of sit on the couch. You're not going to get any benefits to that. So it can augment right. the, the small benefits. Uh, now, from a bone perspective, the issue here is there's a small body of research and it's primarily been based on individuals postmenopausal or into the fifth decade or above. And again, no bone benefits without exercise. Okay. But when you combine creatine with resistance training and or walking, the lowest dose that we see uh, or seem to be effective is about eight grams a day. So maybe there's something going on that that tissue is secondary to muscle. Maybe aging is having a, a detrimental effect or blunting effect, uh, but that's about eight grams. So all of a sudden now you have a difference between muscle and then bone. They're related, but you're like, oh, I can't take different dosages. And then finally, the third big area, now we'll focus on the neck out. And then it, it, maybe if I could just ask a couple of questions um, related to, to neck down. Yeah. So just if you're female versus male, you know, does this eight grams kind of hold regardless of body size? How long does it, did it actually take for, to, to see the benefits of, of uh, that, that dosage um, for men and women? Yeah, that's excellent. So uh, compared to, let's look at biological sex, males and females do respond favorably to supplementation, but males respond better, primarily from a muscle accretion or muscle mass perspective. The relative increase in strength is, is usually about the same. Now, when it comes to bone mass, we see almost a better benefit in females. And you may speculate, okay, cessation of estrogen, they're probably having a natural decrease in bone loss. Maybe come to the rescue for that as well. We don't see a lot of favorable benefits in older, healthy males. And maybe because the skeleton is, is healthy, we haven't looked at disease state populations there as well. So the dose anywhere between three to five grams for muscle, maybe higher for bone. But of course, it's very hard to take different dosages throughout the day. So you may want to just take a slightly higher dose. Uh, the cool thing with creatine, the timing is irrelevant. You can actually take it in one bolus dose. You can take your total daily amount and split it up into multiple dosages. I wouldn't go any lower than one gram. Um, that didn't seem to rise in the blood enough. So I think anything two, three grams, that's half a teaspoon a few times a day. That'll also help decrease any chance of GI tract irritation or bloating that a lot of females complain about. So I recommend smaller, more frequent dosages, maybe put it in your food. That way it doesn't cause as much acute water uh, fluctuate, fluctuation into the, the cell. You know, I haven't really experienced 
any bloating, but I know, you know, women are, are afraid of, and, and maybe you can tell us, is this a myth? Is this truth? You know, do you gain weight from, from creatine? And, and if, if the answer is yes, you know, are there any things that we can do strategies to kind of mitigate uh, that, you know, that, that water gain or that weight gain? Because I know that that's a, you know, an important topic for maybe anyone who's who's not interested in. in it's probably the biggest a fear tactic that a lot of individuals, primarily females, experience with creatine. So, I'll put it two ways. If you were to only take creatine for a week, you would probably be a little hesitant because typically, not always, but typically, the first week is when you get a net increase in water retention and or mass on the scale, but that subsides over a long period of time. So if you're taking it more like two weeks, a month or whatever, when you go on the scale and you're 50 kilograms and after six weeks of creatine, you're maybe 51, it's kind of hopefully an increase in muscle mass and or fluctuations minimally in water. We actually don't see a huge increase, if any, primarily in females with body weight fluctuations. And as you know, Abby Smith-Ryan, she did a really good study on different phases is the menstrual cycle and we're not seeing any difference so if you do experience a small increase in body weight it's probably likely it's intracellular in the muscle and or if it is outside the muscle we're not seeing any increase in body fat so we've got a couple meta-analysis here and i think if you're doing a creatine supplementation with exercise for more than maybe three weeks, you're probably starting to put on an increase in in muscle size or hopefully Bone will take a while, but I think that's the potential there. So for the females, the loading phase, I would not recommend. That's 20 grams a day for five days. You will certainly put on water weight and get some potential adverse effects. That's typically only for the athletes. Uh, But for any females listening here, you can start with as little as three grams a day. You could probably divide that up into to two 1.5 servings, put it in your yogurt or smoothie. You won't even notice you're taking it. And I pretty much guarantee you're not going to notice any fluctuations. Great. So for the ladies out there, I, I, this is, this is kind of what I prescribed to my friends. I'm like, all right, take, you know, a one and a half gram breakfast, lunch, dinner, Mm -hmm. just divide it out. And then, and just do that for, for 30 days. And then after 30 days, you know, consider going to two, 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 and then after 30 days, go to three, three, three. Um, so that's kind of what I've done. And I haven't seen any, you know, I don't know. I don't feel bloated. I don't notice. Anything. I love it. I, actually I might use steal yeah. that for our next study. I love that because you're, you're progressing slowly. Everybody is different mm-hmm. hormones, totally. medications. And then you say, geez, I respond or that's too much for me. Let's go back. I love it. Cause at the end of it, you're right. It needs to accumulate. The timing is kind of irrelevant. And so why not do what's best for you? It's kind of like saying, what's the best exercise to do for the body? I say the one you're going to do consistently. So whatever is easier for you to do. Now, some people say I only can remember to take it in the morning, a bowl of stoves. Sure. But other people say it's kind of like adding sugar to something over a meal. Obviously, it's not sugar, but it's just getting in the habit of adding it. And I personally take five grams in the morning with my breakfast. And then I actually put, so you put it in your yogurt and just I mix do, it around. I literally, and then I put yeah. five in my bottle and I drink that during my workout. So there's my ten Amazing. grams. I don't have to worry about oh god, I forgot or, or whichever. And and I think you mentioned how long does it stay in our body? This is really important. So once after thirty days, you could be well uh, assured that your muscle is so totally saturated with creatine. That means the the room is full of creatine. There's not really much more to go. And if you suddenly stop and you maintain activities of daily living, 
the elevated creatine stays about 30 days. So I think this is huge for people traveling, uh, not wanting to take a bag of white powder across a border, uh, the inconvenience. You know, if you've been taking creatine for a month, two months, and you say I'm, I'm traveling or I'm injured or whichever, it stays about 30 days in the muscle. We think about a little bit longer in the brain. The brain doesn't like to release it as well. Um, so I think that has applications for people. Um, do you need to cycle it? We don't think so. Um, we have no direct evidence to say cycling is better than continuous or not. But I take it every day for the last probably 15 years. And well, I haven't died yet. I've lost my hair. Maybe we can talk about that later, but I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. So if someone were to go on vacation for seven days, it's still going to be in the tissues and they can just resume taking it when they get back, for example, like if they can travel with it. That's 100% correct. And then when you're yeah. on vacation, if you're getting your steps in, physical activity will help maintain creatine stores. It won't increase it. And then again, if you are an omnivore or a carnivore and you see red meat or seafood, that's a viable source to get into the diet. The vegans, again, this is probably more applicable for those individuals or vegetarians. Uh, where creatine is not found in ant or plant-based products, exercise would help maintain those levels more. But even if you said, I'm just going to lay on the beach in Mexico and do nothing, we see the elevation stay for about 30 days after. And the study that showed that was in young individuals and in young females. So again, there's no big sex difference there. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So let's, uh, do, anything else with just neck down that you, you think is important to, to touch on? The other big one is recovery. We, we start to see these anti-catabolic effects. So yes, it, it improves, but there's evidence that it'll, it'll sort of speed up cellular recovery. And that may allow the individual to train. What if it's twice a day? What if it's every day? Um, so yeah. this is the area that creatine doesn't really get talked about a lot, but I really see that the anti-catabolic or anti-inflammatory properties, especially for endurance athletes, is there. Um, that may allow you to exercise every day. So that's something to consider as well. But again, the dose is small, but really nothing happens without exercise. I can't stress that enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think too, that's the other, I think, important point is, you know, if you can train if you're available to train consistently, I, obviously you're just going to make more gains, right? And and I think I think too for for women who are weight sensitive, I try to get all my friends to stop stepping on the scale because that's not a measure of health necessarily. Um, it, it's really a because you're going to gain weight, right? The more you're able to train, the the harder you can train, the the more muscle mass you're going to put on, and the heavier you're going to weigh. And I think kind of coming like recognizing. I think that is is important, and and I've definitely seen you know my ability and my capacity improve over the course of the last year. You know, ever since we talked, yeah. I think a little you know where I start, and I was like, all right, I'm going to just make this a consistent part of my life, and and I really have I really have seen in 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 an increase in, in muscle hypertrophy. You know, I've I've gotten you know more muscular. I think in a good way, and um and and I haven't had my muscle tissue health you know tested, but I would imagine that's improving and yeah, my visceral fat, like all of these things, I'm getting a DEXA scan soon. So I'm excited for that. But, but I really think, you know, for me personally, creatine has been a, a big part of that story. I think uh, for me over the course yeah. of the last year. And, and that's an excellent segue. And the other big thing is people say, well, is it safe? And yes, we've given higher dosages looking at kidney and liver function. And 
it's probably one of the safest, most effective ergogenic aids on the planet. You, you throw that in there with the caffeine and the protein and, and beetroot juice. But the safety profile is excellent um, unless you have a certain medical disease that would interfere with it. But uh, if you take a little bit too much, your, your kidneys just filter that out. And of course, that's why some people get these false positives with uh, high creatinine or kidney issues when they go to their doctor right. because creatine yeah. leaves the muscle as creatinine and that's what's causing it. So um, the safety profile in recommended dosages is, is excellent. If I'm going to do blood work, I just tell my provider, I'm like, hey, my creatinine is going to be high, like right. whatever, just, just ignore it. Um, I'm on. So would you say basically doing a washout before blood work or just being aware that, hey, I take creatine and it's going to, yeah. Yeah. What would your, I simply, is, there, is that necessary? Yeah. I just think I, I agree with you. I, I would tell my doctor, hey, I'm taking creatine here yeah. the dose. It's well known that creatine leaves the, the muscle and it forms creatinine and that's what they use to measure uh, filtration rate. And if you tell your GP or nephrologist, there's a good chance, I hope, they know the pathophysiology yeah. and they're like, okay, yeah. that makes sense. Now, if your liver enzymes are through the roof and your kidney enzymes are through the roof and your hematocrit in the blood is high, that could be caused by other things. And time after time, what seems to happen is people just take off creatine for a little bit, everything comes back to normal. So then they're more rest assured it, it was um, the supplement. But if anybody is, is uh, worried about that, always get medical clearance, talk to your doctor and just say, hey, I'm thinking of taking creatine or I'm on creatine. But study after study has shown this same consistent pattern of safety. Amazing. Uh, let's talk about kids yes. in terms of safety. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know I, I pinged you, I, you know, I have two, I have two kids and I, yeah, I was just, I really wanted to get them on creatine for all the reasons, but I wasn't exactly sure uh, around the safety profile. And then you sent me the, um, I think the prelim data at the time of the concussion study with kids. So maybe just talk a little bit about that and we can segue into neck up to safety profile for kids. You know, a lot of our members, of course, have children and, um, and, and play, you know, contact sports like football and um, hockey. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, maybe just give us the rundown of, of how it can benefit kids yeah. and what your recommendations the would be. The theory is no different than an adult. I mean, we recognize it. We synthesize it. It's no different than carbohydrate or protein or fat. And, and two good, excellent colleagues in the in the States, uh, Andrew Yagom at Mayo Clinic and, and Chad Gersey, they're probably the leaders in looking at uh, creating supplementation in children. And, and all the review papers clearly show when it's taken in low, safe, effective dosages, it has no adverse effects uh, subjectively, like GI tract irritation or other uh, potential issues. And it seems to improve sport-related performance and or, or other health measures. They're currently looking at blood biomarkers, which hasn't been done and which is absolutely crucial before we can say for sure it's 100% safe. But I would be very surprised, if not shocked, it comes back as potentially uh, detrimental because they're synthesizing creatine just like an adult. They're consuming it if they eat any amount of red meat or seafood. And, and the dose per se, three to five grams or based on their size, is, is very viable. I mean, we're even starting to see benefits for pregnancy in the developing fetus, uh, uh, older adults. So since it's recognized by the body, the body doesn't like it, it'll just excrete it down the toilet. It kind of makes sense. There's probably not going to be any adverse effects. If you took a super physiological dose, that's kind of like anything, you'd probably get an adverse effects. But I'd be very surprised if there was a, a pattern where there was adverse effects. Amazing. That's great. Yeah, the whole, 
yeah, fetal medicine is uh, interesting. <laughs> Let's go to my wheel. Kind of, Stacey Ellery in yeah. Australia can handle that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, perfect. So let's talk a little bit about neck up yes. now. You know, what are the benefits and the brain that we're seeing? I'd love to hit on sleep too. Yeah. So this is the area of uh, the hot topic, so to speak. So we're all uh, very familiar that the liver will create our own creatine. And then now we know that the brain will create creatine at a small amount as well. But the brain is different than muscle. Muscle likes to suck up creatine as much as possible because it doesn't make it. The brain makes it so it's very resistant. So we're all familiar with the blood-brain barrier. It's there for a vital process. And it's very hesitant to take in peripheral creatine through circulation and or supplementation. It does occur, but it's at a really reduced rate. So to get across the blood-brain barrier and overcome what the brain is naturally uh, uh, making, the theory is that we need a lot longer-term dosage or higher amount. So this is where it gets different from muscle and brain. When you look at the small body of research, it seems that it takes about 20 grams for a short period of time or about 4 grams or more for several months to accumulate. But yes, creatine can accumulate in the brain. And then when you look at the studies that seem to show a benefit from creatine supplementation, it's in populations that may have compromised creatine to start with. So I'll put it this way. If you're a young, healthy individual, adequate sleep, no contraindications to exercise, you may not experience a noticeable benefit from creatine. But in populations such as concussion, depression, anxiety, some neuropathological diseases, one common denominator is they have a reduction in brain creatine at the beginning. Is there a neuroprotective effect of creatine? So if you have it already in the brain and I were to get a concussion, for example, is there any research kind of supporting that, you know, this can kind of help you get ahead or, you know, protect your brain in some way? So there's two lines of evidence. The best comes from a rodent model, which is hard to extrapolate, but those uh, rodents who were given a, a concussion Um, and then with creatine supplementation that really improved the recovery. But the only study, as you alluded to earlier on in children, when these poor children suffered TBI or concussion, they were randomized to 0.4 grams of creatine. So a higher dose uh, for up to six months or placebo, and they experienced significant improvements in speech, uh, self-care and self-efficacy. So there's indirect evidence to suggest that creatine can speed up recovery. So creatine has been shown to speed up some aspects of recovery from concussion in children. It's been shown to definitely speed up some aspects of recovery in the rodent model. The issue becomes, does it prevent or will it decrease severity of concussion in an athlete? We have no idea. The theory is there, but I'm not seeing any reason why it wouldn't have some potential. It's certainly not having any detrimental effects. So that's why... Most athletes are already taking creatine, and if they do get a head trauma, uh, maybe it'll speed up uh, better. But we need a huge randomized control trial, and this is where it gets tricky. You need to give everybody randomized creatine or placebo first, and then you sit back, have a coffee, and then wait for a concussion. Wait, I know. And you would need over 200 athletes in that, so you would need a multi-country randomized control trial to do it, and that's probably why it hasn't happened. Um, I like that you've already done the power analysis. Oh, on <laughs> we, we've talked to everybody because I think it's a totally. funding model. Yeah. So, I, I think what we should do is um, we should just tap, you know, like the Big Ten, for example. Mm-hmm. It's my conference. But just talk to the chief medical yeah. officer and just literally just let's just do this. You know, I mean, they're getting, I mean, if you look at 
how many concussions are logged in the Big Ten or the ACC or the Pac-12. Like, I mean, I feel like this is not a yeah. hard that we can do it. I mean, yeah, that's totally a, a great segue. If you took even half the NCAA or NFL, the problem is you need to convince these football players to stop taking creatine for several months in advance to get baseline measures. So that's right. Well, that's what I'm saying. NC2A, they're probably not yeah. supplementing with creatine. Like you're, you're likely to get, you know, if we take football, ice hockey, yes. soccer, like all of the contact sports, males and females, I bet we'd get enough of a, a sample it's, size. We're trying and, and then trying to get yeah. the individual, the medical doctors to sign off on the proper concussion protocol and testing. It's, it's a really yeah. daunting challenge, especially to get through ethic yeah. uh, boards. It's yeah. very, very tough, but we're trying. Yeah. So yeah. at the end of the day, it has potential. Um, I think if anybody is engaged in contact sports, I think creatine could be something to consider. Um, and then when you look at individuals with depression and anxiety on medication, it's definitely showing some promise there by decreasing some of the symptoms of, re- of, of depression or speeding up recovery. Um, again, that's in combination with their medication. Um, so I think that's a huge area, especially since post-COVID or, or it's an area that we're always looking at. Um, creatine really has not been shown to have a lot of benefit for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or Huntington's. The theory was there, but again, the issue is long-term trials with large sample sizes. Um, there's benefits for uh, muscular dystrophy in young boys, but we also don't see a lot of promise in MS. I think that's because the sample sizes are so small that the treatment effect over time is minimal. But I'm really excited about concussion, other forms of traumatic brain uh, injury and depression, I think are the big areas moving forward. And at the end of the day, it doesn't have to be with exercise. So this is kind of cool. We think activities of daily living, walking, blood flow, there in those studies, we see some benefits. But I think the hottest topic from a non-disease perspective or condition is sleep deprivation. And that's where we see some of the best evidence. And the question is, geez, you know, uh, staying up overnight, students cramming for midterms, you've got an overnight flight to Italy, uh, your shift works from, you know, midnight to 8 a.m., you wear the watch or whatever, and they're saying, hey, you're sleep deprived. The theory is that creatine seems to decrease either the amount of sleep you need to perform activities of daily living. And when you go into the cellular data, it's a very interesting mechanism. It's just like in the muscle. It decreases oxidative stress or inflammation in the mitochondria in the brain. So it seems like it's sort of clearing out the garbage that's created when we're sleep deprived, when you're foggy and you're like, oh, God, I'm jet lagged. Um, I would put jet lag exactly with sleep deprivation. Um, and then when people anecdotally have told me I've, I've increased my creatine, I feel way better with even less sleep. Uh, that's anecdotal. Um, but there is some studies that have shown that um, some of the best evidence actually is that it can overcome some of the negative effects of sleep deprivation. Yeah. I wonder how long, you know, that, that holds, right? Like we know we need to spend time in bed. Like there's all sorts of things happening during biological sleep that are, are, are not going to happen during wakefulness, right? During, so, um, very acutely, right. You got coffee and IV drip of caffeine and you just, nothing can overcome a good night's sleep, no matter what anybody will uh, give you, but this is acute sleep deprivation. But if you're chronic, Oh, you're going to need a lot more sleep over time for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an important, mm-hmm. uh, it's an important distinguish that we're talking about acute bouts of sleep yeah. deprivation. The the all nighter, you know, that you're studying for, or 
you know, just uh, you're on call for 48 hours or whatever. Um, yeah, we definitely, uh, as you know, I, I do a lot of mm-hmm. sleep research. So this is an area that I spend a lot of my time thinking about. And we do see declines, you know, in, in markers of recovery. We see declines in cognitive functioning. We see declines in, you know, things like psychological safety, you know, other performance metrics I think that people care about. So there's something there. But if, if we know that, you know, being on a, a, a consistent regimen of creatine will help us mitigate the impact of these acute bouts of sleep deprivation, I think that is just an incredible strategy and, and uh, for folks to deploy. Term, uh, similar lines of this, there's other people out there that are really stressed, such as students or do a lot of mental, physical tasks at job, and they come home and they're saying, I'm really mentally tired. So our plan is in uh, the winter term to give 30 grams a day, the highest dose in young individuals, but they're going to perform a long stroop test, which if you've ever tried it, will make you go cross-eyed in about two minutes. I've used it in many of my te- and in many of my studies right. and back and stroop. And then yeah. we're going to do a whole bunch of cognitive tests right after. Could creatine not a- not only allow them to get through the stroop test that's extended, but allow them to perform cognitive? So we think of studying for a test. They cram for a test, and then can they actually perform the test better? That would be interesting for the MCAT or law school. So that's uh, we're going to be planning that right after Christmas. Yeah, amazing. All right, Darren, what? What do you feel like we're missing here? What are, what are some other headlines that like folks have to yeah. have to understand? I think the big area that's emerging is bone health, especially in the U.S. I was at the American College of Sports Medicine last year, and that was the biggest area of interest. And and this seems to have the greatest line of, of evidence because we had such high sample sizes. And the big paper we just put out uh, last year, two years in postmenopausal women, over 200 individuals. So it was one of the rare studies that were adequately powered. Um, we gave 11 grams of monohydrate a day for two straight years, and it had some beneficial effects on preserving the bone integrity of the skeleton, primarily around the hip. So the theory was those individuals on creatine and which obviously performed exercise, they may uh, withstand a fall or fracture later in life. We don't know that, but if you strengthen the bone, uh, that could be very beneficial. Uh, it also improved lean mass as well as gait uh, uh, functionality, tasks of daily living. So uh, we're really starting to focus more on uh, postmenopausal females. And then we want to get into really young individuals and old, old adults over the age of 80. And maybe could this cause any motivation to exercise and maintain activities of daily living. Um, The other big thing there is we looked at side effects, liver and kidney annually. There was no more side effects in creatine compared to placebo. And we gave 11 grams of monohydrate a day for two straight years. It was the only study to ever do it. And we're pretty confident by that in a population where organs start to sort of decline in, in function that's triple the amount that we usually recommend for uh, younger individuals had no detrimental effects over placebo. So we're confident that the safety profile is there. And the other big one is what about other forms of creatine? I can't stress this enough. I would only ever consider monohydrate. It's identical to what we're naturally producing. So if you're going to go buy creatine, at least make sure it's monohydrate and make sure it's third-party tested. You don't want to have any impurities or other, anything else in there. I'm only talking about monohydrate when we refer to creatine. Okay, perfect. Uh, just to go back to uh, the the bone mm-hmm. study. So you had 200 women, two years, uh, receiving 11 grams of creatine monohydrate daily. Um, you said you controlled for exercise. Did you have 
how much uh, experience did those women's have versus training coming into the study? How much did they do over the course of the study? Was it two times a week, three times a week? Just very curious about, you know, just what what is influence, you know, what what is the maybe minimum dose of of resistance training does someone have to do to, in order to get the benefits I, of of this dose? Yeah, of no, that's an excellent point. So uh, these were classified as healthy, non-trained, and especially at that population age, we typically don't get a lot of individuals in a large sample size that were training three or four days a week. So they had minimal resistance training experience. Um, but what we did, we tried to adhere to the U.S. and Canadian guidelines for physical activity. So they did six days of walking at about 20 to 30 minutes a day. So that achieved their 150 minutes per week of what we consider aerobic exercise. And then we did three days a week of resistance training, which was like machine based. It was supervised. That's slightly more than basically what's recommended two days a week is the minimum. Some weeks, if they didn't get the three days, they could extrapolate that over. So not a lot of expectation. However, the average individual says, I have no time barely to work out. How am I going to do this? All that simply showed is in in an experimental study that exercise plus creatine was effective more than exercise alone. Amazing. I love it. Darren, what do you know about the the topical creatine for anti-aging? And I'm very interested in this. I'm like, did not even know that that existed. So it's interesting <laughs> you bring it up. My mentor, who is one of the best researchers ever, and he's probably the, one of the best creatine researchers and probably no one hears about on social media, but he did a study on kind of like this topical creatine. And you're thinking, wait a minute, how in the world is it going to get in like an anti-inflammatory subtopical cream? Uh, but at, they actually showed some potential improvements in muscle force production. And so I had to go back and say, okay, the epidermis, how does it get into the capillaries to get into the tissue? We still don't know. The study's never been replicated. Um, so I can't really comment on the reliability or if it, if it works over time. But when you see these companies promoting anti-aging creams with creatine or whichever, I'm really skeptical on the efficacy of those as well because creatine needs to go intracellular. There could be some potential benefit on elastin proteins, but I don't know the link between creatine and collagen uh, from a skin perspective, maybe bone. Um, so I'd be very skeptical. Um, uh, maybe, hopefully you're probably buying the cream from moisturizing perspectives, but I don't know about this creatine and anti-age, but I actually have seen it marketed when I was in Las Vegas. And I was like, oh, look, if I buy this, I'm going to get creatine. Kind of doesn't work that way, but um, maybe down the line, a dermatology uh, research firm will come up with a cool idea for it. I mean, I think just generally, given everything that you've just kind of described in terms of creatine's ability to increase capacity, potentially to, you know, move more, lift more, get stronger, improve muscle tissue quality, I would imagine that actually helps with Mm anti-aging, right? There's a, a, you know, I would have. I would think. Yeah, for so, me, anti-aging yeah. is exercise. I, I mean, the force field decreases. Like, you could have the crappiest diet, but if you exercise, you're still going to get all the benefits. But if you don't exercise and you have the best diet, I think you probably wouldn't get the same effect. So I think exercise acts as almost a protective force field. Um, I love Stu Phillip and Mike Joyner's idea that you can outrun a bad diet because all we consider that is about weight loss. What about all the other benefits about it? And I really love um, those two researchers, I think they're exceptional and, and they put out excellent work from a practicality yeah, standpoint. I can listen to Mike list talk all day, like all day. <laughs> Same. Every podcast is on, I just listen to him and it's it's like, uh, it's fantastic. 
Um, I know, I know. Like, just talk about VO2 max, yes. Mike. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> he sort of remembers everything, but um, yeah. And then it get, that goes in line with you know the, the fountain of youth is exercise. Creatine will give potentially a small beneficial effect, and I use the analogy of the cake is exercise, the icing is protein, and then the sprinkles on top may be creatine. At, at the end of the day. 95, 90% of anything you get is from exercise. And then the maybe extra boost, if you will, is from ergogenic aids. There's only five or six that the ILC endorses. Two happen to be creatine and protein. And I think those are the two that we get through our diet. Plant-based, primarily protein, and uh, but creatine can come from both. Um, and, and again, or supplementation. So at the end of it, if you're exercising, you should sit back and be very proud of yourself. 30% of the of the North American population doesn't even move. So if you're exercising, great. And then if you can take some proper nutrition, food first, and then maybe a little bit of this dietary compounds, you might get an extra benefit from it. What are some of the big myths you hear uh, out there? Well, the biggest is when you look at me is baldness. And, <laughs> and I've changed my answer on this because I used to have hair and spiky and all that stuff. And then but I also started to lose my hair before I started taking uh, creatine. But they say I'm a messenger of creatine and they look at me like, well, look at you, it's it's there. So we've never been able to measure this. There was one study that looked at a hormone DHT, which is not even correlated to follicle uh, loss. So when someone says, does creatine cause baldness? I say, there's no evidence to suggest it does. There's no evidence to suggest it doesn't. We've actually never measured it. But I've tested over a thousand individuals, easily over a thousand, and not a single one has come to me and says, hey, my hair is thinning, whatever you're giving me. And, and so maybe that's some subjective uh, evidence. So there's no evidence to suggest it causes baldness. The other big one, it, it does not destroy kidney or liver function at healthy uh, recommended dosages. What's the other big one? It's not a steroid. Anybody can take it, including females. Like that's a big one we're trying to emphasize. And it doesn't increase fat mass. If that number on the scale goes up, uh, we've looked at two meta-analysis now, and um, it actually has been shown to decrease body fat percentage in both, uh, or 18 and 18 years and above, only by about 1%. But at the end of the day, you can conclude it doesn't increase fat. So bodybuilders, always worried about water retention. I'm like, no, you should be taking it. It's going to make your muscles probably more full and that might allow you to perform more exercise. So I think for you, especially for recovery, it may allow you to train multiple times. Um, and so it's something that we've gone from the athlete, I think, to now the general population and it might have some benefits. What about, uh, I would imagine just thinking about it mechanistically, it's shuttling water to the muscles. So cramping, it, would it help with cramping? It, it, so that's a, that's probably the third biggest myth. It, a lot of people said, oh, I experienced more muscle cramps with it. No, it's super hydrated the muscles, so you actually get yeah. less. Um, and right, when right. creatine comes into your muscle, it drags a bit of water, and then it unlocks things called satellite cells, insulin-like growth factor, proteins in the mTOR pathway, blah, 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 all this cellular stuff, which might explain why people experience an increase in strength, endurance, performance, muscle mass, and maybe some of those recovery agents as well. So it doesn't directly stimulate protein synthesis like a protein molecule, but it certainly does everything around it. And it's likely it probably would if we just did long-term studies. Amazing. Dang, this is so good. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, you take it during workout, you take it, uh, 
you put it on your your breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, is there does timing matter at all? Like, can I take it before bed? Like, does it does it matter? So currently, the the answer is no. However, there is some evidence to suggest that prior muscle contractions seem to stimulate creatine transport into the muscle. So logically, you would say, well, prior muscle contractions means a workout. Why not take it post-exercise? And so that seems to be a very viable time to take it. And there's been evidence to suggest that exercise does increase blood flow and transport kinetics. So taking it after exercise or like I do during, or you could take it right before blood flow is going to be enhanced uh, that way. So I usually like to take it in close proximity to exercise, but then you can spread it out and take it other times of the day. Now I'm taking 10 grams a day. But if someone says, well, I just want to start with three, I would say take it after you work out, put it in your meal, post-exercise meal or your smoothie. That's a great way to to, to get in the habit. And then once you work yourself up, you may take it multiple times uh, throughout the day. Um, But we are having three studies planned uh, in 2024 looking at the timing. And one of the coolest designs is we're going to give individuals creatine only on the days they work out. And then another group gets creatine only on the days they don't work out. So that'll totally answer, does blood flow or the timing matter? The theory here is if the timing matters, the people who take creatine on the days they work out should get greater effects. But if the group on uh, rest days get the same benefits, we know for sure it doesn't really matter when you take it. Mm. I would definitely, there's a circadian component there that would be important to consider. So, you know, just before noon, afternoon, you know, kind of, um, yeah, I think that would be important to isolate because in theory, we're more primed to do everything right. metabolically yeah. before 3 p.m., right? After 3 p.m., we're just not as good. So, And luckily yeah, for females, but... we of course, we now know that the menstrual cycle and oral contraceptives really have no effect on performance and, and things like that. And luckily with creatine, we don't seem to see that effect as well. So um, that's one thing we can control, but we still ask and try to monitor. But the fluctuations from the luteal to the follicular phase fluctuates from pre-testing to post. It's something we try to monitor, but it's very difficult. Yeah. 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 So you'll have, will you have in that study, you'll have women on hormonal birth control, women not on it? We probably will for the issues of recruitment. And what we'll do is we'll just track that and then do sub-statistical analysis with vegans versus omnivores, oral contraception versus not. And then if we can try, I don't know how to do this. I'll have to talk to Abby, maybe how to measure females in the luteal phase versus follicular and we don't even know if they know we're not going to do blood markers to, to measure that so it would be subjective but we at least can ask the medications they're taking mm. as long as you know you know when they start their period right. when they end their period mm-hmm. you know you'll obviously be able to identify right. those phases of the menstrual cycle right. and pinpoint that yeah yeah and and fortunately like a lot of the you know, on Whoop, we, we are able to track the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's lots of apps out there yep. where women, I think, are getting uh, a lot more knowledgeable right. about their own body. Yes. And it's more common for women to track. So I think you'll get your data. All I'm saying is going to be much We better. really struggle um, since COVID uh, for recruitment. I'm not sure why, especially, but uh, we all sort of ask anybody who's willing to come into the study. And then it's up to us as scientists to try to put sub analysis into it, but we're really struggling for some reason to get uh, volunteers. Uh, we didn't before COVID, really? and then now it's, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. I'm not sure why, but yeah, it's, it's something that um, I've been thinking about. Yeah. Mm. Wow. All right. Final question. Okay. Uh, what are you obsessing over right now? 
Well, we're really interested in the aging population. And what we're going to try to do is look at creatine for people who can work out at home because we still think the barrier of exercise is time. So we're going to be looking at rubber tubing or at-home exercise with creatine. Can that improve some functionality in older individuals, especially in retirement uh, homes or long-term care facilities? We're really interested in finally putting this notion to rest, does the timing of creatine really make a difference? And then thirdly, what about the effects on cognitive performance in young individuals? And those are the three main areas. So we have seven studies planned for this year and moving into 2025. Um, so pretty excited to get new data out and, and see where it takes us. Yeah. I love it. Well, it's such exciting stuff, Darren, and uh, just appreciate your time today and just everything that you've done to, to educate folks uh, on this uh, really really cool efficacious compound <laughs> thanks so much for your time yeah, thank today. you for having me appreciate it thanks big thanks to dr darren kandow for breaking down all things creatine on this episode wishing you all a phenomenal holiday season big thank you to all of our whoop members for what's been a great year don't forget to sign up for our january jumpstart challenge and if you enjoyed this episode of the whoop podcast be sure to leave a rating or review you can check us out on social at whoop at Will Ahmed. If you have a question you want us to answer it on the podcast, email us podcast at whoop.com. Call us 508-443-4952. If you're thinking about joining Whoop, you can visit our website to sign up for a 30-day free trial membership. Also, new members can use the code Will to get a $60 credit on Whoop accessories. All right, that's a wrap, folks. Thank you all for listening. Happy holidays again. As always, stay healthy and stay in the green.